Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Cushman, author of the book, The General Civil War, What Their Memoirs Can Teach Us Today. Stephen, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm very glad to be here. And we're very glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Uh, I am a, a professor of English, not, not of history, uh, at the University of Virginia, where I've taught for 40 years. This is my 40th year. And I began as a writer of and a scholar of uh, poetry, American poetry, and that has been my primary activity here, but somewhere in the late 1990s, I had finished a book and was looking for another project. And I found myself turning to uh, a a longstanding interest in the American Civil War. And that was a a good moment for me because it seemed that uh, historical interests were becoming more important in, in my discipline as well. So I began teaching and writing about the American Civil War. And uh, now, what is it, 30 years later, uh, I've just finished a third book about it. And that's been a major part of my activity as well. I I can see the linkage because it's not as though, uh, you know, poetry is an alien literary form to the Civil War. And yet your book is not about poetry, but about memoirs and the memoirs of a very select group of authors. What led you to write a book about the memoirs that were written by the generals of the Civil War? I, my last book uh, was called, my last Civil War book was called Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. That, that book came out in, in 2014 from North Carolina Press. And in it, uh, the, the writers in it are uh, Abraham Lincoln, Walt Whitman, William Tecumseh Sherman, Ambrose Bierce, and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Some of those people have had a lot of things written about them, certainly Lincoln above all, but also Walt Whitman, also Ambrose Bierce. Nobody has really written about Chamberlain as a writer, and uh, and nobody had really written about Sherman as a writer. And when I when I finished that chapter on Sherman, uh, in the course of, of working on that chapter, I came across Sherman's correspondence with Mark Twain, to whom he turned uh, at several points asking advice about publishing uh, a travel book that he had written. And it, it was though my ears popped, uh, the scales fell from my eyes, and I realized that certainly in the case of Sherman, Although we think of him primarily as a as a towering military figure, he also thought of himself as a writer. And I began to think about these big books that all came out at the end of the 19th century, some of them the early years of the 20th century, by these generals, uh, many of whom suddenly found themselves turning amateur author. And I became very interested in the intersection there of literature and history uh, and the ways in which history writing, particularly by these figures at that time, had to have a a certain literary component to it. So then I started just in the years that followed uh, accepting, as, as often is the case, invitations to speak or contribute essays here and there. And over the seven years from... 2014 to this year, 2021, I put together this collection of of explorations of General's memoirs. And then I began to look for the threads and lo and behold, they were actually there. And then I pushed a little deeper and more things made sense and more things connected. And the final product is, is what you have. One of the things I thought was really interesting as I was reading your book, and I I found to be very revelatory in a lot of ways as it made me think about the subject, is how you're not just talking about a uh, certain category of memoirs, 
uh, in the sense being the, the, the memoirs of, of the military commanders. You're also talking about a, a, a period of American literature that you know, it, nowadays uh, you, we, you have people writing memoirs and, 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 and accounts to you know, uh, explain themselves or cash in on their, on their, on their moment of, of celebrity. But you, you have this, what you describe is a period where uh, there's, there's a lag after the civil war. And it's this window from the mid 1870s to the early 1890s, where these books come out. And I thought that was pretty fascinating too, about how it, it's about a decade after. And as you explained, there, there is sort of a, uh, there is sort of a synergistic factor at play here uh, in, in terms of uh, what's going on. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate on that and, and explain why it was that you suddenly have this, this group of generals. And again, uh, to be clear on both sides of, of, of the, of the civil war divide who are, who suddenly decide to uh, put pen to paper and and to uh, write these accounts and and what is it about these accounts that you find to be uh, so uh, useful for us today so that's a great question and um, the what happened what I started to discover was that people began writing their memoirs, Right away, uh, the, you know, younger, uh, junior people in the army, civilians, people from both sides, men, women, began writing right away uh, in 1861. What happened is then that after the war, the major surge on the on the cultural front was in the book industry, the book business, and all kinds of things happened really in a very short time. Uh, the number of magazines doubled in the U.S., the number of newspapers nearly doubled in the U.S., uh, the price of paper became much cheaper, and typesetting and presses became much more effective. Literacy increased so much so that uh, suddenly libraries were, were much more active. The founding of the American Library Association is 1876, right there in, the, in, the, in that decade. And so there's a kind of huge tidal wave of of bookiness, books, book business. Combine that with the, particularly in the North, the incentive to cash in on a new market, and you have publishing giants like Appleton and Company, Charles Scribner and Sons, Harper Brothers in Philadelphia, J.B. Lippincott, all these large publishing houses suddenly see that they can begin to make a fair amount of money, one, because of the boom in the book business, and two, because of the, of the retrospective interest in the Civil War. They start approaching various generals. They approach generals from both sides. And what you realize is that although people who were uh, torn apart by the war, were still struggling to reconcile with, with each other and with the other side after the war. Actually, business people were quite ready to play both sides of the, of the game, to work both sides of the, of the tracks. And so all of these houses started publishing works by authors from both sides. Uh, Johnston's, Joe Johnston's memoir comes out from Appleton in 1874, then follows Sherman from the same publisher in 1875. The same publisher publishes Richard Taylor, uh, the Confederate Lieutenant General. The same publisher publishes Jefferson Davis's memoir. And and so this is a, a really extraordinary phenomenon that's going on. On the one hand, here here are rank and file Americans uh, of all backgrounds trying to come to terms with this catastrophe, this disruption. And on the other hand, here are these uh, commercial entrepreneurs who are just having a great time selling these books. And and it's that moment that I became very interested in. And as you explained, they're not just writing about the war in terms of this is how I remember it. You, they're also 
it, it's a way of, as you already mentioned, how, how the country is coming to terms with it. And, and you talk, you demonstrate how so many of the politics of the 1870s and 1880s are reflected in this. I'm thinking here primarily about uh, Richard Taylor's uh, memoir, which is is not just about, it, it, which is, you know, deconstruction and reconstruction. He's talking about a, 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 a uh, you know, that, that whole era as it's being looked on in its immediate aftermath. But it's, it's also interesting because when you're talking about something like uh, Joe Johnston's memoirs and William Sherman's memoirs in your chapter, you describe how they're talking about the same event from different vantage points and it, how there's this fascinating process taking place that in a way is a microcosm of this reconciliation that's going to be playing out in the decades uh, to follow. Yeah, the uh, I mean, what's so what's so interesting to me about say the the Johnston Sherman uh, episode and and that particular chapter, which is the the first of the chapters after the introduction in the book, um, they they were not particularly close. Uh, before they're not one of those stories like say uh, Longstreet and Grant who were friends before the war and then and then fought on opposite sides they didn't really have anything to do with each other before the war uh, during the war they they faced each other at least three times first Manassas Bull Run uh, then in the in the Mississippi campaign and then in the, the final campaign in the Carolinas um, but it was. After the, it was beginning with the surrender negotiations in the Bennett Farmhouse in April 1865, and then after the war, as they were writing their memoirs, and then after that as well, that they actually became quite close. And they, they, I think, uh, both in good faith, but also intentionally performed a kind of reconciliatory dance with one another in which each one responded to the writing, writings of the other, and they kept going, kept corresponding, and did form this close tie, so much so that there's the famous story about Johnston going to Sherman's funeral and, uh, as popular memory has it, catching his, his, uh, his death cold in, as he was uh, helping to observe the, the formalities for Sherman's funeral. Um, I, I find this really interesting because I think it's almost inconceivable now that, that two enemies could do that kind of public work, uh, both in writing and in their private lives. Uh, so I, I find that episode really interesting. I also find it really interesting that although Grant and, and Sherman, sorry, Grant and Lee get pretty much all the attention for Appomattox, it really is the Johnston-Sherman surrender negotiations that end up affecting many, many more soldiers. And uh, yet we don't really think about them anywhere near to the same extent that we think about Grant and, and Lee. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a little bit, because it, you're, you you describe how it's part of this process of, of uh, of uh, developing the memory of the Civil War that's taking place, but you know, while you make uh, you, you talk a lot about Sherman and Johnston's friendship uh, in, in that chapter, you also make it clear that they're not exactly on the same page as to what happened during those surrender right. ceremonies, right? And, yeah, and, and and the differences that are still very much there. <laughs> yes, no, no. I mean that uh, that's that. I find that a very compelling and dramatic episode. Uh, it, it, for me, the, the the antecedents are the last meeting, the, apparently what we know about it, the last meeting uh, on the River Queen, Lincoln's steamboat. And at that meeting are Grant and Sherman and, and David Porter, the admiral. And uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with, as the war ends and how to how to treat the South. And that's when you get the perhaps apocryphal statement by Lincoln, let him up easy. Let, let, let's let's not have a lot of revenge and reprisal. Um, Sherman thinks that he's acting in that spirit when he meets with with Johnston in the in the Bennett farmhouse and, and basically uh, it it isn't content just to end military hostilities but but takes the bait that that 
John's, Johnston and Breckenridge, who's there as well, uh, that they dangle before him, which is why stop there? Why, why shouldn't we just acknowledge uh, all existing state governments in place and and go from there and sort of effect a sweeping uh, reconciliation and Sherman goes well that sounds like a great idea and uh, and of course by that point when the term when he sent the terms back to Washington uh, now President Johnson and Stanton the still the Secretary of War just explode and he, and and write back to him that he's exceeded well they send. They send Grant to get down to see him to say, you've exceeded your military authority and this won't do at all. And of course, Sherman, who had a, was very touchy and had a very short temper in a lot of ways, uh, was mortified and humiliated and felt that he'd been betrayed. So he has to go back to Johnston a second time and then they come up with the final terms, which are based on the same terms that Grant offered Lee at Appomattox. Uh, when you read the two accounts side by side, what you see is that is that each writer, Johnston and, and Sherman, each one is is jockeying to cast himself as the one who's in control and really understands the situation, <laughs> which uh, which of course in Sherman's case turns out not to have been the case. <laughs> now, one of the things that I uh, thought was uh, a, a very interesting point. Uh, moving on to Taylor's book, which uh, I didn't, I had, I, I, I checked this because I, I was amazed that I kind of missed this point. Is that you describe roughly a half dozen uh, memoirists, uh, you know, very famous names, uh, Grant and, uh, and and Sherman and, and Johnston, and and you have Richard Taylor in there. And one of the things that distinguishes Richard Taylor from all the other memoirs you describe is he's the only one who didn't go to West Point. He did not graduate from the United States Military Academy. He went to Yale, and you use that point to make a very interesting observation about the role that classical literature plays in the composition of memoirs, particularly his. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain that that classical uh, parallel and, and how Taylor adopts it or, or, or how, how Taylor uh, adapts it in order to present his uh, take on the war. I find Taylor... Uh a really fascinating, fascinating character. Uh, Douglas Saldo Freeman ranks in this, in the, his book, the South to posterity ranks Taylor's memoir at the top of, uh, literary compositions produced, uh, by former Confederates. And, uh, well, the thing about Taylor that's interesting is if I were, if there were a scale, if one had a scale of, uh, literary ambition, of the of the generals that I look at, uh, Taylor's at the top, probably with with Sherman coming second, and uh, and he he is is, is an uh, frighteningly learned person, or let's put it a different way, he wants you to think he's a frighteningly literate person, and he is at every point makes makes uh, goes out of his way to make allusions to classical literature, to all kinds of military history, uh, back back into not only the classical world, but European, modern Europe, recently modern European history. And uh, it's as though at all times, whenever he's talking about the American Civil War, his service in which the most famous part of his service is, of course, being with Stonewall Jackson in the Valley campaign. Um, whenever he's talking about those things, it's as though he wants you to look at those events through the lenses of a long tradition of learning and history that he himself, Richard Taylor, is shaping. And, uh, it, it makes it makes it a very interesting book, uh, really a very intimidating book in a lot of ways, as I think he meant it to be. But as I say at one point in that chapter, the nice thing about having all these digital engines available to us is it's not hard to find out pretty quickly to what he's referring, even even when it seems to be an especially uh, esoteric kind of allusion. Um, at one point, that what's particularly interesting is when he turns to the Valley Campaign, 
1862, he, he starts to talk about it and then he, he turns into an aside and he, he thinks ahead to the later Valley campaign, which is, of course, the one taken, uh, prosecuted by Philip Sheridan. And whereas he, he Taylor loves the 1862 campaign of, of Jackson and thinks that that, and that is the best part of that, of his memoir. He thinks that what happened in the Valley under, under, under Sheridan is, uh, basically a war crime, basically an abomination and beyond, beyond the limits of, of civilized behavior. Well, what you realize is all these allusions and all this classical learning and all this uh, erudition that he's been marshalling, he, Taylor, has been marshalling, is for the purpose, at least at some point, of passing that judgment on Sheridan and all that Sheridan represents, which is a kind of a new kind of warfare that's not being conducted by cultivated people and gentlemen and officers with any kind of uh, sense of moral obligation. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a strong indictment. I don't think it's, I don't think it's true. I think, I think he fudges some things that he, he might've thought about in a different way, but it, clearly that seems to be what the thrust of all his learning and culture is, is to say, look at, look at what I represent and look at what this new brand of warfare represents. It's an interesting point that you return to when you talk later on in the book about McClellan, because there, there is this, that, that idea of how there was a certain way to fight the war that was the traditional way, that was the gentlemanly way, and how the war gets resolved in a much more brutal fashion. And, and that, of course, you know, raises a much larger question. The Civil War is that, you know, it, it, was it, you know, more was it more uh, devastating to drag out the war and fight it the way that the general that the gentlemen wanted as as the generals you know thought of themselves or to fight it in the more brutal way that say grant and and sherman employed which you know ultimately ended the war in 1865 and not in say 1866 or 1867 yes the uh and this is this we can really see what's so interesting in the case of mcclellan um and by the way for for those who don't know mcclellan's of of the memoirs that i look at uh mcclellan's is the only one published posthumously. Uh, he, he died when he was rewriting it. Uh, he lost his first manuscript in a fire and he died while he was rewriting it. And the memoir we have is largely the posthumous work of his, uh, editor, uh, William C. Prime. And, and Prime is a, was a great friend of McClellan's and a political supporter and wanted him to look good. But, what you do see, even through that that's perhaps slanted lens of pro McClellan editing, what you do see is that from McClellan's point of view, the bewildering the bewildering thing about his service in the war is the the extent to which the nature of war and war aims changed right in front of him, and some people would say changed because of him because of his of his, I don't, I don't know if you want to say failure, but the way that the Peninsula campaign turns out, uh, it's quite clear to the people back in Washington that that the old way of waging war, where perhaps you don't fight on the Sabbath and you conduct yourself like Christian gentlemen, isn't going to isn't going to be adequate for what they are up against at this time. Uh, and McClellan, of course, uh, finds this. Horrifying in in much the same way that that Richard Taylor did, uh, that that this is we've gone we've gone into a new realm here where the new apostles are are Grant and Sherman and Sheridan, and and there and it's not about it's not so much about cruelty although there is the famous statement by Sherman about war is cruelty you cannot refine it as it is about making war more humane by making it quicker. And of course, that's the same argument that many people advanced for the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan is Mm -hmm. if we do this now, horrifying as this may be, it should shorten things. And uh, of course, that's a that's a particular way of waging war. And McClellan just was appalled by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you mentioned how Taylor had uh, came across as you know formidably learned in his book, and I, I don't think it's you know really that uh, secret that he had these high literary aspirations for his memoir, and yet. As you make clear in the next chapter, the memoir today that we look to as being the great literary work of this group is Grant's personal memoirs, and how you have with that a, a work that uh, people—you know—it's it, in many ways become uh, the Caesar's commentaries of the Civil War, in that it does seem to be the outstanding literary work produced by a commander, the one that will likely endure uh, for centuries to come, while uh, people like uh, you know memoirs like those of Taylor's uh, become much more obscure. Yeah, uh, th- th- uh, for Twain and and one of the people we haven't we haven't talked much about Mark Twain so far, but Twain is a, Mark Twain is a major presence through this book because he is the publisher of the first publisher of Sherman and McClellan and Sheridan. He actually then also does woo. Sherman later on, he gets a third edition of Sherman's memoir out. So he's very much connected with all these uh, Northern generals. And Twain always felt that Grant's memoir was was miraculous. It was a great work of American literature uh, produced by somebody who did not have aspirations to write a great work of American literature. (laughs) What I, and, and actually, and actually Grant resisted and didn't want to write anything. And if he hadn't been swindled out of all his money and had to support his wife, uh, he might never have written his book. Uh, Twain really, I think got that book out of him and everybody knows the story that Grant of course is racing terrible cancer by the point he, at the point at which he's writing his memoir. When I, the way I look at Grant is uh, I start off by asking, you know, the, the cliche about Grant is what makes his memoir so readable and so accessible is, is its great simplicity of style. And everybody writes, people who talk about Grant tend to say, well, isn't this, isn't this something? I mean, what a humble, simple, straightforward guy. And of course, he wrote a humble, simple, straightforward book. And, and what I try to show is this isn't true at all, that in fact, Grant, as a young man, uh, letters we have by him to then Ju- to Julia uh, Dent, not yet his wife, but his fiance at that point, uh, they show a, a guy experimenting with all kinds of writing styles, including some heavily influenced by, say, Charles Dickens or travel writing of the 19th century. Very florid and meandering and indulgent and so forth. So the first point about Grant's memoir is, is his style in that book is an an achieved style. It's a style that he had to develop. And in trying to figure out how he did develop his style, I decided that there were really uh, three major influences on him. Uh, one is one is Lincoln, and that he he began reading Lincoln uh, when Lincoln he began reading transcripts of the Lincoln Douglas debates, and then of course he he meets Lincoln later on when he comes east to command the army and, uh, and, and becomes a regular correspondent of Lincoln's. Lincoln, I think, taught Grant the, the value and the power of indirectness and uh, understatement and leaving some things unsaid. And, and Grant learned that lesson very quickly and very well. Uh, the second influence, I think, on Grant was actually Mark Twain. And this is fascinating because what you realize as you start to track it, uh, Twain and Grant met in the 1860s, but uh, uh, by the time Grant dies, you realize that actually this is a, a, a circuit loop that they've been reading each other. And, um, that that Twain begins admiring Grant very early on for his, uh, his, unconditional surrender message to Simon Buckner at, uh, at Donaldson. And, uh, but Grant has also been reading Twain. Grant, we know Grant read uh, The Gilded Age and uh, 
uh, a lot of other, he probably read Huckleberry Finn, which was coming out at the same time that he was writing his memoirs. So uh, what he learned from Twain, I think, is how to fashion a kind of literary mask. Uh, and I'll say a little more about that in just a second. And then the third uh, influence, I think, on Grant was the telegraph. That that when Grant be, became general of the army, you know, he was writing. He he his day his the daylight would end, and then Grant would be up much of the night writing communications. Uh, and he became a writer, and he became a writer in a new form that was about uh, clarity, precision, directness. And I think you can feel the influence of the telegraph in in much of. Oh, Grant's memoir. Uh, the last thing I'll say about Grant is that is that what you realize from from what he learned from Twain, I think, is uh, the power of what you leave out. And what we know, I mean, we know we know that Grant had problems with drinking, and uh, yet there's none of that in the memoir, not a single thing. Uh, we know that a major person in Grant's life is his wife, Julia, but she's mentioned only two or three times. There are many moments where we know that Grant, uh, because of the kind of war he prosecuted, we know that Grant was responsible for thousands and thousands and thousands of casualties. Uh, And yet there's very little of that. Uh, There are a few vignettes and basically what he says went at, at Shiloh and in a couple of other places is how sickened he was when he went, near a field hospital or he saw a wounded man or something. And uh, you realize that there's a lot, there's a lot about hard war or what we would call, what people call in the, in civil war scholarship now, the dark war that Grant keeps off stage. He just keeps it out of the book. And, uh, and, and that there's nothing straightforward or simple about that. That's a calculated decision by a narrator about what to include and what to exclude. I, I thought your your point about the telegraph was especially fascinating because it makes me think about how uh, it, you know about you know the way to which writing is a practice and something that you that you master through repetition. And you also bring in the uh, the 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 you know, the story, the Hemingway uh, story about how when he was learning how to write, he was basically given the sort of direction as to how to become a writer that the telegraph forces upon you. I mean, you're talking about a, a medium and, and you make the analogy with, with, with you know, Twitter, where you have a you can you have a, a set number of characters that you can use. Uh, telegraph's not restrictive in, in, in that sense. But you, you're 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 constrained by expense. You're constrained by numbers to you to, to kind of make your your messages as brief as possible. And there's also the fact that he, he's not just a writer of telegraphs; he's a recipient of them. And he had this ability uh, to compare uh, the Lincoln that he conversed with, and 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 as you describe, you know, he you know he had stories told with the Lincoln that he would have had to have received communications from via telegraph. And that comparison must have been. Uh, uh, influential as well. I think I think that's an excellent point. Uh, he, I think, one of the things he learned from both Lincoln and uh, and Twain was how how a writer is a shapeshifter. And at a given moment, Lincoln could be anecdotal and and off color and backslapping and and droll and sly. But he also had to write telegrams that were setting in motion large events such as the one that he writes to uh, to Sheridan at, in, during the Appomattox campaign where Sheridan has said I think if the thing is pressed we can bring this to a close and Lincoln writes back the famous one-liner let the thing be pressed and that gets us into into what Lincoln how Lincoln became the writer he was that's a subject I talk about in the previous book, Belligerent Muse, not this one, but it, it does bear on this, which is, I think Lincoln learned a huge amount about uh, voice and tone and how to, how to adopt different points of view just from being a lawyer and that he had to take different sides of different issues and so on. And I think, I think some of this rubbed on upon Grant too. Grant was not, not a lawyer, but uh, I think he started, Grant had a pretty good understanding on his own and from Lincoln about uh, 
lots of different points of view and lots of different voices. And I think that he was able to move among them quite nimbly. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to read about Grant's memoirs, which are uh, justly famous, and to compare them with what McClellan does. And, and you make a comparison of variety of levels. Uh, you, you've already talked about how McClellan's memoirs uh, had to be re- had to be uh, rewritten. Uh, McClellan dies before they're completed. They have to be assembled posthumously. But you also talk about how, whereas Grant, you know, it, Grant's books, while it, his memoirs about his entire life up to uh, the end of the Civil War, he talks about the Civil War and most of it. Uh, so he's talking about a, a four-year period in it. McClellan is much more focused upon that much smaller window of time when he's much younger than Grant, where he is in command of the Army of the Potomac. So where his his focus is, is upon that 18 months where he's in charge of the Army of the Potomac and, and involved in a lot of the key activities there. Yes. Um, the... The, the the McClellan Grant, I mean, that's so interesting, those two books, uh, because the Grant is a, you know, com- we haven't mentioned anything about this, but the Grant is a complete commercial success and a, a major blockbuster. In the end, Twain ends up paying Julia Grant uh, between 10 and $11 million in our dollars today. It's an astonishing commercial success. And of course, Twain at that point thinks that anything he does is golden. And so whom should he get in touch with next? But the other, the other very popular general, uh, certainly among soldiers, uh, who's McClellan. And you can, you can tell that there's a commercial angle to this as well, because after McClellan dies, uh, Nellie McClellan, McClellan's widow is quite clearly interested in making money as well. But the, (laughs) but the, uh, the, of course, the, the big difference, at least, at least rhetorically or, or narratively between Grant and McClellan is that, is that Grant gets to write with the confidence of probably the most celebrated American of his day. And McClellan has a very different agenda, which is to, uh, exonerate himself after a sharp downturn in his reputation. And so one of the things that uh, you get in McClellan that you, you, you hardly see at all in Grant is uh, McClellan loves counterfactuals. Uh, if, if I, if I had, if this had happened, if Burnside had been uh, more aggressive at, at the bridge at Sharpsburg Antietam, we would have won and then this would have happened and so on. And he does, he has a, he has a tendency to, to do that quite a bit. And some people f- find that very irritating and just confirms their negative opinion of McClellan. Um, I, I have a different feeling about that, which is that uh counterfactuals are what we do all the time. And, you know, if, if only this had happened, then this might've happened. And, and we historians, whether professional or, or amateur homespun uh, are carrying out those kinds of thought experiments all the time. Uh, And, and McClellan does it in a way that, that some people find irksome because after all, part of the code of being an officer is you, you just go with events and you don't sit around and second guess them. Particularly, you don't second guess your commander in chief, which unfortunately McClellan did a lot of. Um, but it's actually quite a very human thing. And uh, the other thing about McClellan's memoir that I find uh, really very interesting and uh, important is that whereas, whereas Grant is devoted to his wife, but puts her almost nowhere in his memoir. McClellan is devoted to his wife. And because of the decision of his editor, uh, William Prime, McClellan's memoir turns out to be a kind of uh, collage or pastiche of McClellan's narrative, but also many of his private letters to his wife that, of course, he, McClellan, would never have put in the memoir had he lived. But Prime puts them in there, and they actually give us a side of McClellan that I don't think a lot of people know, which is that he he comes across all the time, in, in many people's view, as uh, arrogant, well, very cautious and, and uh, not as aggressive a, a warrior as he should be, but also 
complaining, self-justifying, whining all the time, asking Washington for more reinforcements and so on and so on. But the McClellan of the letters to his wife is a much more tentative, vulnerable, hesitant person. And uh, I I think it's a, a hugely important piece of of understanding McClellan to know this because without it you it's too easy to succumb to the caricature caricature vision which is that he had a bad case of the slows and was no good at anything except organizing an army which everybody praised him for that's one of the things I I really valued about your book was that the way that you you took the memoirs and used them to highlight points about people that seem so well-defined in our historical imagination. And yet you explained that the memoirs can show sides of them that we didn't appreciate. The, the counterfactual one is an excellent example because that's there. And you're right. I mean, I, I, that's something that, you know, I, I could, I, I read, you know, at face value as, as, you know, him basically saying, you know, effectively shifting blame on others. Uh, the other, another aspect of that, uh, where you do that with McClellan that I thought was fascinating was his uh, references to uh, the Almighty. Because again, on on a surface level, I could read that as it's his way of saying that in the end it was God's will and, 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 you know, and that that's, you know, and so McClellan's not really at fault, but you use it instead to talk about how McClellan is a man of faith in a way that we don't easily appreciate from that, that caricature that you just referenced. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, you know, let's say any of the great monuments of recent civil war memory, let's say Ken Burns's 1990 series or Jim McPherson's battle cry of freedom or whatever you, whatever you choose, um, you know, if you were to say, okay, religious, religious generals, who comes to mind? Well, you're going to say Stonewall Jackson, uh, you might say uh, Leonidas, Leonidas Polk. Polk. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you might say Rosecrans uh, on the northern side. No, nobody says McClellan, and yet, and yet, when you when you actually dig in and start reading, you realize, uh, and and his conversion largely comes with his his marriage to Nellie, um, and she she's she's quite a Calvinist. Uh, what you realize is when he went into to his generalship quite determined to do what he thought was the will of God and not in any kind of messianic way as much as if the Lord says, keep the Sabbath holy, then he issues uh, an order to his troops saying, do as little as possible on the Sabbath. Or if you're or if your enemy is is suffering with the wounded of your enemy are suffering, send the enemy bandages and quinine and lemons and these things he did send to Lee uh, to be used in his in for his men. And and McClellan is trying to wage war as what he understands a Christian <laughs> to be. He is trying to wage Christian warfare. A lot of people would say that's an oxymoron, that's a paradox. That still was what McClellan was trying to do. And and we don't we don't think about him that way. Uh, and and so one of the ways to think about, say, his his notorious caution is that he is trying to to be the kind of a uh, responsible moral warrior that he understands he is he should be. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to go back to a, an earlier point that you make in the book, which is you talk about the uh, you you mentioned in the book that uh, you, with Sherman's memoirs and Grant's memoirs, they've been uh, they they've been immortalized in a way by being part of this the famous Library of America uh, series, which endeavors to keep them in print for all eternity, and. The contrast, in, in my mind, between those books, which are, are very, which are very uh, easy to acquire today and, and easy to read, with that of Philip Sheridan, who I'll be honest, before I read your book, I wasn't even had written a memoir, and, and yet you, you, in your chapter, you make a case that Sheridan's book may not have the stature of Grant's or, or Sherman's as as a memoir by a leading Union commander, but it is nonetheless one that has. A considerable merit to it, and, and offers something a, a, a little different, and 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 much, and that that enriches our, this whole genre. Uh, I, I think it's very true. I I 
was amazed to start reading uh, not only Sheridan's memoir, but also his correspondence about the memoir, again with Mark Twain. Um, and I think I think in Sheridan's case, you have a you have a very instructive example of the workings of the Civil War memory market, because by the time that Sheridan is is getting is writing and remember when Sheridan is writing, he, too, is a very popular figure. He's being talked about as a possible presidential candidate. Uh, and so, so he is, he's, his publishers are, his people are trying to capitalize on his fame in many of the same ways as the other figures we've been talking about. What you see in the case of Sheridan is that by, uh, 1888, the civil war book market has become saturated and uh, Fred Hall, who is uh, an associate of Mark Twain's at Charles Webster and Son Twain's publishing company, is writing Twain saying of, of Sheridan's memoir, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to sell this because everybody's writing Civil War memoirs and there are so many of them. And so I think that it's not an accident that, that you did not know that Sheridan even wrote one because by the time you've read a thousand pages of Grant and a thousand pages of Sherman, who wants to read a thousand pages of Sheridan? Sheridan is number three on that on that uh, Mount Rushmore trilogy. He's, he ranks third, and a lot of people just are not are, are exhausted by the time they start thinking about him. Both both now and back then in the in the eighteen eighties. The point I make about Sherman, uh, sorry about Sheridan, is that uh, he. It is it is was very much a can do kind of person, uh, both as a warrior and as a writer. And when Twain approached him and said, "How about writing your memoirs?" Uh, basically, Sheridan said, "Okay, that sounds like an interesting thing to do." And what does he do but take as a model Grant? And he he's very much writing in the wake of Grant's success, Grant's memoir, and a, a lot of the conversation among uh, people in Twain's publishing house is, oh dear, we hope Phil Sheridan doesn't think he should sell as many copies as Grant, because of course, <laughs> yeah, be, because of course he won't. Uh, but, but he is proceeding in that kind of practical, matter-of-fact way. Sheridan turns out to be a, a very good storyteller and uh, and to have a, a wide range of sensibilities and responses. What I love about, about Sheridan's memoir is his unabashed frankness about his own, well, you could call it insubordination, and that he he won't be he 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 has a very early incident at West Point where he's suspended for a year for almost attacking an older cadet, uh, and he takes he 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 follows that pattern right on through, including up to Grant really wanted Sheridan to go uh, down towards Sherman and work and work for Sherman, and and Sheridan said he that he'd rather have hot tar poured up his nose. He he didn't want any part of that. He wanted to be. He wanted to be his own independent agent. And as it turned out, you have to give a lot of credit for the Appomattox campaign to the pace at which Sheridan conducted warfare. Uh, so one of the things that I talk about in the, in the, in the Sheridan chapter that I think is really worth thinking about in all, in all memoirs, not just generals, is what the, the concept of what the philosopher Thomas Nagel calls moral luck moral luck that if you know if you take a risk and it turns out badly then no then no, everyone's going to say oh you made a really bad moral choice but if you take a risk and it turns out well then suddenly some people say well that was the right thing to do and in 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 Sheridan's case the 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 really uh pleasing thing at least narratively or satisfying thing narratively is he does risk a lot and uh he it, it ends up paying off for him. And uh, so that's what makes that book so satisfying, I think, in many ways. Hmm. You conclude your book uh, with a chapter that's not on a general, but about uh, the person who, in effect, 
makes so much of this possible. And 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 the opening uh, sentence, I think, does a really nice job of, of detailing why you do, which is you say, without Mark Twain, the Civil War memory market would not have developed as it did. And without the Civil War, there never would have been a Mark Twain. It, it's, it's fascinating to think about how uh, you have this, uh, you know, this one figure who casts this large shadow over uh, this genre, and yet, you know, he served just you know, a few months in uh, in the war, and who uh, never really wore a proper uniform, much less uh, ever had uh, shoulder straps to to uh, to wear during it. Yeah, yet, yeah. He, I- he, he, Go ahead. Sorry. Well, he ser- he actually served two weeks. <laughs> he, he he served two weeks as a as a as a as a partisan uh, in Missouri, fighting uh, nominally on the side of the Confederacy. Although sides were a little strange uh, in Missouri at that point, um, and and so you know, some people have said, well, that that Twain's interest in Grant and Twain's interest in the war. Uh, Subsequently, was sort of compensatory, as though he's working off guilt for having been a uh, a deserter, because he, after two weeks of of his partisan irregular service, he said no thanks, and he went off to Nevada, and that's where he starts to become Mark Twain and use that pen name. Uh, but I think the uh, I think Twain is a hugely important figure for so many reasons. One of which is he. Uh, he understands the moment commercially, uh, but also psychologically and culturally that this is a moment that that people want these stories from these leading figures. He also, and we haven't spoken about this yet so far, uh, Mark Twain is only the author of the greatest first-person narrative experiment in American literature of the 19th century in Huckleberry Finn. And and what what these memoir, what strings these memoirs together is their use of the first person I. And we say, well, of course, that's what memoir, that's how memoirs work. But that's not how they worked from the beginning. Caesar's commentaries are in the third person. Xenophon's and Abbasis is in the third person. Even Winfield Scott's memoirs are in the third person talking about Winfield Scott. The the use of the first person as the sort of natural default mode for memoir writing was a very new thing in the middle to late part of the 19th century. And I think Twain grasped this. I think he grasped the importance of this, that he, he saw a moment where the public and the private, the public and the personal, converged in ways that would forever reshape the way Americans think about their own history and their own politics. And I think we can see that. I think we're living out that convergence of the personal and the public right now. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'd be happy to. Um, I'm doing, I'm doing a couple of things. Uh, my colleague uh, now retired Alas for me, but but hurrah for him. Uh, Gary W. Gallagher and I uh, have been editing uh, books that are collections of essays about uh, iconic works of of the Civil War period, and uh, we just brought out a second one, um, and we're now beginning to sink towards a third, collecting more essays on significant works of the Civil War period. Um, I'm also beginning to think now towards my my next prose project, and uh, I, I have a few ideas in mind. Uh, there, there are some figures I'd like to look at um, whose memoirs are still out there, and I haven't I haven't yet done done this with them yet. Uh, I won't name any names because uh, if, if I change my mind, I don't want anybody reminding me that I said this before. Um, <laughs> and then the the last thing is I, I actually have a, a new book of poems in production right now. So those will be coming out in, in 2022. Oh, well, it sounds like you're you're very busy. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much for spending some time out of, your, out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, thank you, Mark. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much.